there's a uh, teacher at the University of Florida named John Somerville, taught history there. And when his freshman students would arrive for the first day of class, he would introduce this scenario where they were to imagine they would see walking down the road a feeble old lady with a few bags of groceries. And Somerville would ask those students, how many of you would push her over and steal her groceries? And not surprisingly, all of the students said, well, no, I would never do anything like that. And then he began to ask them for the reasons why they wouldn't do that. And he said that as the students would begin to answer, you could always categorize their answers according to two categories. He said some would give what he calls a self-regarding answer, where their answer has something to do with them and the cost and the implications of them. They might say something like, I might get caught and sent to jail. Or they might say, my mom would kill me. Or I would lose my scholarship if I ever got caught. And then Somerville would say some students would answer with what he calls an other regarding activity or answer. They would say something like, because I might hurt her. Or because she might not have a lot of money. See, what Somerville is doing with his class as he begins is he is recognizing that you can build a semblance of family and community on a self-regarding ethic, but at some point that runs out of steam, and as your concern for yourself in the conduct, community begins to fall apart. As we study Mark 15, we will see Jesus and the others in this text operating out of either a self-regarding ethic or an other-regarding ethic. In fact, we'll find with Jesus a third category that Somerville doesn't categorize, which is a God-regarding ethic. What does God wish and what does God desire in acting then according to the will and desire of God? You see, it is with Jesus who says that it is not his will, but it is the Father's will that he is seeking to live out as he follows. And so we're going to look at the different groups that we encounter here in this text in Mark 15, and we're going to look at their behaviors. The first group we want to look at is the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, and the whole council. And we find out what's fundamentally behind their actions in the 15th chapter and the 10th verse. It says, For he, that being Pilate, realized that it was out of jealousy, or your text may say envy, that the chief priests had handed him over. Envy, I think, being the best or the most accurate definition. Envy being defined as pain or distress caused by another's success. See, there's a foundational assumption when it comes to envy, and that is the, lo the notion of limited supply. We could understand limited supply in this way. You've been hiking for seven hours with five of your friends, and you are now down to your last three water bottles. Each of you get a half a water bottle, and when your friend starts drinking the water bottle, if he gets over half of that, he is now drinking your water. And you have an issue with him now. 
But then there is also the concept of the notion of unlimited supply, which is quite the opposite. These hikers now stumble across a fresh water spring and your friend drinks for 20 minutes or for 30 minutes and you don't care because in no way does his consumption affect or impact your ability to have as much water as you want also. See, envy is rooted in this notion of limited supply that what others are receiving is now somehow a threat to what you can receive. Earlier in Mark, we discovered this cultural mindset when it comes to power, that people view it as a limited supply. Remember when James and John asked for one to sit at the left and for the other to sit at Jesus' right? What they are asking for is those limited seats at the top of this power structure. We know that the other disciples share this very same mindset because when they hear about it, they become indignant because they also are fighting for that limited supply of power over people. Jesus instead challenges their view of power, Mark 10, verses 42 and 45. So Jesus called to them and said, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers, that they lord it over them. And their great ones are tyrants over them, but not so among you. Whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wishes to be the first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for, for, more, for many. So Jesus, it seems to be, is proposing this power of servanthood which is available in an unlimited supply. There's always someone else you can serve, and there's often not very much competition for the servant job. But it is unlimited, and as those around us participate in serving, it is no threat to our ability to serve. See, what is growing out of the notion of limited supply, it leads into this notion of envy. When someone begins to garner power or support, then you must be losing your power and your support. So what will an envious person do to the power of another? They will do whatever is necessary to secure their position and to maintain their own power. That's what we see the chief priests and the elders, the scribes, and the whole council doing. Remember, there's been conflicts all throughout Jesus' time in Jerusalem. And after the cleansing of the, table in, uh, of the temple in Mark 11, verse 27, it says, And they, the leaders, came, and as he was walking by the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him and said, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you authority to do them. Their concern with Jesus is focused on one thing of limited supply, which is authority. And they believe that as Jesus garners more and more authority, they lose authority, and thus Jesus must be dealt with accordingly. They act then out of envy, out of their own best interests. They exemplify a self-regarding ethic. All they do is for their protection of their position. They do not care that the blind see. They do not care that the deaf hear. They do not care that the dead are raised to life. They only care about themselves and their position. See, God had made back in the book of Ezekiel a charge against those who lead in this way. Ezekiel 32, verses 2 through 4. Thus says the Lord God, 
Ah, you shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the sheep. You have not strengthened the weak. You have not healed the sick. You have not bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strayed. You have not sought the lost. But with force and harshness, you have ruled them. And so what we find here, as we find these chief priests and elders and scribes in the whole council, is people acting out of a self-regarding ethic, acting out of envy, not in the best interests of the people, but in their own best interests. And they, therefore, are not a good example for us to follow. We meet now a second party or individual in this text of Mark 15, that of course being Pilate, and once again we are told exactly what Pilate is up to. In the 15th verse, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas for them, and after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. As we are introduced to Pilate, we find that he is the one who has positional power and authority in this text. What has happened is that the case of Jesus has been handed over, verse 1, to Pilate. Pilate now has jurisdiction. Typically he lives in Caesarea, but during the time of Passover he comes to Jerusalem because he expects these sort of things to happen, insurrectionists. And he is there to be the one who will maintain order by his own power, squelching any uprisings before they begin. He is the one who has positional power as he directs the conversation with Jesus. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And for those of us who have been reading through Mark's gospel, this sounds like a strange question because never before has Jesus been introduced as the king of the Jews. Seems most likely what has happened is that these leaders, the Jewish leaders, have translated of sorts the charge Jesus, again, confessing to be the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One. And they know that in, in Pilate's court, that is not a charge that will stand. And so they instead said, this man claims to be the king of the Jews. And so Pilate asks him this question directly. And Jesus' response is vague. Some of your translations may give a response that is very conclusive, like the NIV saying, yes, it is as you say. Or the New American Standard Bible, it is as you say. But instead, the answer is supposed to carry a sense of vagueness, like the, easy, or the English Standard Version, you have said so. See, Jesus often gives obscure answers in the Gospels to invite further self-reflection. He did it back whenever he was teaching about giving taxes, and he said, Give to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God's what is God's. And he's inviting people to reflect on the question, What is Caesar's, and what is God's? In fact, I think that we should go back to Mark 8, where Jesus first said, Who do people say that I am? And they gave all sorts of answers, and finally Jesus said, But who do you say that I am? And so Jesus, as he is asked if he is the king of the Jews, Jesus is really inviting Pilate to consider the question, is that who I am? You're the one who is saying it. And it's an invitation for those of us who are readers of the gospel to say, I don't know, will I affirm that, that Jesus is the king of the Jews, or will I not? Jesus is inviting all parties present to consider the question of his 
identity. But we are told in 15.3 that the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him again, have you no answer? Which seems to indicate Pilate didn't see Jesus' response as an answer. He says, see how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further reply. So Pilate was amazed. It is Jesus' silence that causes Pilate's amazement. This is not Pilate's first rodeo. He was appointed as the prefect in 26 AD, and depending on when you date the death of Jesus, this means it's either four years or seven years now into his serving in this capacity. And so he has tried cases. We know at least two other cases, if not three other cases, he has already tried, and he has convicted people for insurrection. And he knows how that dance goes. The person comes in and a charge is made against them, and the person does everything they can do to deny it. Oh, no, they're misunderstanding what I was doing. Oh, I wasn't there. I had nothing to do with it. Have you ever heard the phrase, everybody in jail is innocent? Because that's what Pilate expects. People will be willing to say whatever they need to say, to do whatever they need to do to get out of the crucifixion. And yet what is shocking about Jesus, unlike those others who would have stood before him, Everyone else acted out of a self-regarding ethic. I will say what I need to say. And here Jesus does not say what's needed to be said. Even though Jesus, it seems to be aware of the cost of his silence. So Jesus is acting with true power out of a God-regarding ethic. And he stands out to Pilate. Jesus has said, a lamp cannot be hidden it will stand out, and Christ has just been a lamp. The Pilate says there is something dramatically different about this man who stands before me. There is no begging. There is no groveling at my feet, but just silent conviction. Even though Pilate is impressed, we will continue to notice that there will be a power shift here. In verse 8, it says, So the crowds came and began to ask Pilate, Pilate has been in control, being the one who has been asking the questions, but now we begin to notice a subtle shift. The crowd now beginning to hold power as they are the ones who are approaching Pilate and now asking Pilate to respond to them. Of course, we find in verse 9 that Pilate does answer them. So we have a shift of now Pilate's no longer the one asking and the others are answering. Now it is the crowd who is asking and Pilate the one who is answering them. And what is it that they are asking for? They are asking that Barabbas be released. And then ultimately that there be the punishment of Jesus. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? It's very clear Pilate is hesitant to release him. And yet the crowds are shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And the question becomes, what does a just, righteous, and moral leader do? When you have a sense of what is right, and you sense the crowds turning against you, what is it that you do? What Pilate does is he does what's in his best interest. He satisfies the crowds. The irony, of course, being the one who has the power over the crowds, ultimately succumbs to their pressure. Pilate's treatment of Jesus is for political expediency, and it is out of a self-regarding ethic. 
And Pilate, I think it's easy for us to point pictures at him and say, boy, when the crowds start to turn against you, but there's been one person, Peter was unfaithful when the crowds turned against him. But even when the crowds began to turn against Jesus, he remained faithful to the calling and the commissioning of God. But do we ever feel that temptation when the crowds begin to shift, when something that you believe in begins to become unpopular? Do you stand true to what you know is true? There was a famous psychological test done in 1961 by a guy by the name of Stanley Milgram. It's called the Milgram Experiments. He was out of Yale University. And it all started with this very simple promise in a newspaper, $4 for one hour of your time. Now, 1961, you might get a response. I don't think many people would do $4 an hour these days. But over the next couple of years, hundreds of people came for this experiment. And the experiment was set up in a very simple fashion. The volunteer was there to help a teacher teach someone. And the teacher would teach, and the teacher was in on the experiment, and the student was in on the experiment. He would ask questions. And if the student got the question wrong, it was the volunteer's job to push a button that would give an electric shock to the student. And there were notches on the dial that they were asked to turn, went from as low as 15 volts with a sign under that said a slight shock to 450 volts that said danger, severe shock. And what Milgram wanted to know is when pressured by the teacher to say, you need to give this higher shock, would people do it? What would have in fact been a fatal shock, it would have killed the person if the other two were not actors in the scenario. And 65% of the people pushed the fatal button. We are a people who succumb to peer pressure. We are a people who find ourselves much more like Peter and much more like Pilate. And yet the call is to make our lives, our behaviors model more like the life of Jesus. So let's look at Jesus' example now. Jesus, as we've found him characterized ever since the beginning of the rest, is the one who is silent and faithful. Faithfully playing his role as the suffering servant. The key text that Jesus is living out is Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before his shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. See, to understand the significance of what Jesus is doing, you could go back through, which we don't have time, but you could go back to the whole gospel and you will find Jesus is in control in every situation and scenario. Where do they go? It's where Jesus wants them to go. What is done? It is what Jesus wants to be done. What is said? It is whatever Jesus initiates. And yet we find himself in this new place. The one who is passively involved in this role. In 1441, Jesus said, The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. In verse 46, it says, They laid hands on him and arrested him. 15.1, They bound Jesus and led him away and handed him over to Pilate. 15.10, They realized it was out of jealousy that the chief priests had handed him over. In verse 15, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowds, released Barabbas for them, and after flogging Jesus, handed him over to be crucified. Do you see the pattern of Jesus was handed over and handed over and handed over? and handed over until he is finally handed over 
to the crucifixion. And in each of those cases, he plays a passive role. This one who for 14 chapters played the active role. Now, because he's commissioned by God, plays the passive role. As it is written in Acts 2.23, this man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. See, Jesus is acting according to the plan and the foreknowledge of God. So how is Jesus different than those we have met so far? He is not acting according to a self-regarding ethic. No, it is a God-regarding ethic, and out of his regard for God, it shows a regard for others, those to whom he has volunteered to give his life. See, what Jesus is teaching us in this text is what love looks like. 1 John 4.10 says, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be atoning sacrifice for our sins. Love is an other-regarding ethic where one, even with the opportunity to save him or herself, will freely give themselves. Jesus is also teaching us what loving leadership looks like. If we go back to Ezekiel 34, we talked about those Jewish leaders, and that text also talks about the nature of this one to come as the shepherd. Ezekiel 34, 15 and 16. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed, I will bind up the injured, I will strengthen the weak, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with justice. And of course, all of these things to care is all done at the personal cost of the one who gives it. And so I guess a question I want us to reflect on as we finish this morning is what kind of a follower and what kind of a leader will you be? There's pathways here. There's options in Mark 15. One who acts out of envy, does whatever they can to get whatever positional power they want. One that that acts according to, to whatever the majority is thinking. Or one that acts according to what God desires and what God wishes and what God wills. See, that brings us to the fourth main character in this text, a guy named Barabbas. Why is Barabbas in prison in 15.7? He was in prison because he was with the rebels who had committed murder during the insurrection. And I want you to imagine that on a giving day, you go by and you hear two people giving speeches. And the first, as he stands there on the hill, this is the content of his speech. He says that you should protect your interests at all costs. If violence is necessary, you should use it. Don't be passive and allow your future to just happen. You need to fight for the future that you want to have. If you're going to be killed either way, it's better to be killed doing something about it than doing nothing about it. And of course, it would not be surprising to hear the one who offers that speech is a man named Barabbas, who has led this insurrection, who has said, I'm not going to be killed, I'm going to kill To bring about, he believed what God wanted for the people of God. And then on that same day, you hear a second man speaking. And he encourages people to submit to the will of God. He says that he himself will be handed over and killed. He invites those listening to take up their crosses and follow him. 
He says, and whoever wants to be, to be the first must be the servant of all. Of course, we know that to be the kinds of things that Jesus would say. But I want you to ask yourself honestly, which of these two people ideologically do you relate most with? Would you be willing, like a lamb led to the slaughter, to be taken advantage of in the ways that Jesus was? Or would you say, for 